as of uh, this last Wednesday, we had our Ash Wednesday service, which was fantastic. You can find out on the, um, the welcome desk out in the foyer, you'll find these little slips of paper that look like this. And on the back of it, it has uh, six weeks worth, but basically a, a verse per week, uh, kind of that you would meditate on. Um, and then it's got a worship song attached to that as we kind of work uh, over the next several weeks between now and Easter uh, this idea of making things fall, having things fall in our life that keep us from experiencing the fullness of uh, our life with Christ. So you can go find these in the back. Also, the, the songs that we have on here uh, are on our website. So you can go on the church's website. The, the songs are already linked on there, so you can see those. So every week there's a, a devotional and a way for you to be engaged with that. Because we're in our Easter season, we're also uh, driving toward our Seder meal, which we're going to have. Some of you are like, I don't know what that means. So there's Passover, right? We have Passover, um, which is an ancient Jewish uh, tradition and celebration of, of God's saving Israel uh, out of Egypt and out of slavery. And that was the meal that was celebrated at the, the Last Supper with Christ and his disciples. And a Seder meal is, is a, a way of seeing the Passover through uh, Christ and interpreting what happened at the Passover meal through Christ and the rich, amazing symbolism that's in the Passover meal that gets us ready for, for, uh, for Easter Sunday. So I just want to encourage you, um, that's coming up, and I think we'll start doing registrations in the next week or so. Um, it's a way for you and your family to come and, and uh, to celebrate uh, Easter. So it'll be Good Friday evening, um, the two days before Easter. So all that's kind of coming up here uh, in the next several weeks. We want to just encourage all of you to be a part of that as we get going. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians today, 6 and 7. If you want to turn there, we'll have it on the screen. Uh, I uh, heard this week, I think I heard Friday, that somebody's trying to get it on the ballot uh, for November that we would vote to do away with daylight savings time. Hallelujah. Right? All right, yeah. So I'm just going to say now, anybody that wants to run on that ticket and push for Chick-fil-A to be open on Sundays, <laughs> I'm voting for you, okay? So uh, I'm excited that maybe that's actually going to happen. It's good to see you guys here. I know there's spring break and everything else and a million places you could be. I'm glad that you decided to be here with us today. So we'll see what God has for us. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6 uh, and 7 is where we'll be. Uh, I I'm going to tell you today, uh, at the beginning of, of our time, the very best thing that you could hear in church today. The very best thing you could hear in church today, and I mean any church, any church you would ever go to, I'm going to tell you the very best thing you could hear, and it's not going to be about your sex life or your health or the best life that you can have or your circumstances changing. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Best thing I could tell you today is that God is doing a new work in you today through the Holy Spirit. That's the absolute best thing that you could ever hear. That God hasn't rejected you, that God hasn't squashed you out of existence, that God hasn't rejected you for eternity, that God hasn't consigned you to a place of punishment forever. He has died on the cross for us in the person of Christ and made a way for us to have uh, eternal life with him, right? That's amazing. Then he doesn't just leave us to live this life on our own. His spirit is in us, working in us, changing us every day. That is the grace of God, right? That's the very best thing that anybody could tell you when you go to church, okay? That God has made a plan for you, he's made a way for you, and he's working in you every day through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at, that's called grace, and we're going to look at uh, some of that grace today and, and really, I guess, ultimately how that grace is supposed to change us. Change us. What's that supposed to do to us and in us? So that means that that grace, the work that God's doing in you today, what he did on the cross for you, um, that means that, that because it's of grace, there's no cost to you. 
So anything we talk about today is not a way for you to earn what God's done for you because it's grace. It's a gift. It's been provided, paid for, given to you, okay? So it's not a cost. There's no cost to you, and it's better than anything you could ever dream of, all right? So that's kind of the premise. That's the baseline of what we're going to start with today, all right? So look in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul kind of starts out with that. And he says, working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So as much as we would love to sing these songs and, and have your pastor say, uh, this is the greatest thing I can ever tell you about, you know, this is the most amazing thing God could ever do for you is give you salvation, a way to be with him and be forgiven of your sins and have the Holy Spirit work in you. That's grace, Right? God's great work in you, and then Paul kind of goes in chapter 6, he's got five chapters to get to this point, then if the, the thing that, the application question that he asks us here is, am I receiving that grace in vain? Am I receiving this great work that God has done in me in the past and that his spirit is doing in me now, am I receiving that in vain? So here's what I would Here's a negative way. I'm going to give you a negative illustration of what that might look like to receive the good news. So the good news of God is that Jesus died for you on a cross, that he's working in you today. The Holy Spirit is working in you today. How can you possibly receive that in vain? So I'm going to give you an illustration. It's a bad illustration of receiving good news in vain. When I was in high school, uh, I went to high school when we had designated smoking areas on campus. Does anybody remember that? There was like a cage in the back of the school and smoking, kids that smoke could go back there and smoke during school. It was crazy, right? And so it was nuts. We had vending machines everywhere. I don't know why. I don't know what the deal was. There were vending machines in my school, my high school, everywhere. Going downstairs, you'd have the little zigzaggy stair, and on the landing in the staircase, there were vending machines there. It's kind of weird. They were just everywhere, candy and sodas and all that stuff. And I remember one day in particular, one of my really good friends kind of comes to me just before the bell rings. He wasn't in my class, and he comes into me just before the bell rings, and he goes, dude, the vending machine in the hallway right around the corner is broken, and you can get anything you want. <laughs> and so I, at the time, I was a payday freak. You guys remember payday candy bars? It's kind of the leftovers of all the other candy bars, and they made this other candy bar with it. I don't even know what's inside of that. And then there's peanuts around it, okay? I loved them. And that whole, that machine had a whole row of paydays. <laughs> One entire row was paydays, right? And so I am all about this payday thing. And I'm a Christian at the time. I'm 16, 17 years old. I know better. That kept me, literally, that's what kept me from going. I was just like, oh my gosh, I want all the paydays I can eat right now. And I was like, Jesus wouldn't like that. That's literally what kind of ran through my head. So I didn't do it. Now, my friend was a Christian too, not as holy as I was. He got all the paydays he could get, man. Like He goes to the machine, and he is just taking them out. He skips class to get the paydays out into this bag, right? He ends up making like 30 bucks selling paydays at half cost, you know, to all the other kids in the school. In a way, I received good news in vain that day. It was the great news that the vending machine was broken, and you could get all the payday you wanted. I didn't do anything with it. I, I missed out, I guess you could say, right? I received good news in vain. Now, here's a positive example of receiving good news and something that you could do with it. Not too long after that, I'm 17 years old or so, at my church, uh, one of Mindy's good friends, we knew each other kind of at the time, and uh, 
big church, big youth group, and one of Mindy's friends comes up to me, and she may watch this at some point. I don't want to hurt her feelings in any way. Her name's Robin. She's awesome. And Robin comes to me. She goes, hey, Jow. That's how she talked. Am I wrong? Hey, Jow. <laughs> I was like, yes, Robin. You know the twins? Mindy's a twin. I said, yeah, I know the twins. She goes, one of them likes you. <laughs> she ran off. <laughs> Dude, that was good news. <laughs> you know what I mean? That was good news, man, right? I did something about that. <laughs> I, mean, I acted on that one. That was good news that I did something with. First one, payday good news. I didn't do anything with it. I, I received that good news in vain. This good news, man, I went for it, right? I did something with that. You can receive good news in vain. You can receive good news in such a way that you don't do anything with it. Paul's going to just kind of hammer us here in the next like chapter and a half about what does it mean to receive good news and then not do anything with it? How do we receive the news about God's great grace to us, his great work in our lives, the Holy Spirit and what he's doing in us right now, and receive it in vain? So what are we in danger? So basically that word vain, it's the same thing like if you read it in Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. It's kind of the same idea. It means emptiness. How can I receive the grace of God in such a way that it is, is emptiness? What does that even look like? Okay, well, here's what he cannot be talking about. He can't be coming to Christians and saying, you can lose your salvation. That doesn't match up with the rest of Scripture. So you can't read this text and say, oh my gosh, there's a way where I can hear the gospel, receive the gospel, and then lose the gospel. That's not what he's talking about, okay? So what does he mean when he does say this? You can receive the good news of God in such a way that you hear it in vain. We're going to hit this pretty hard, as Paul hits it pretty hard. Baseline uh, understanding, but also in a theological way, which we'll pick it apart as we go, I would say this. What he's saying is, you can receive sal salvation from God. He can save your soul, redeem you from hell, forgive your sins, all that kind of stuff, secure your future for heaven. But you can receive that in such a way that your daily experience of being transformed isn't as powerful as it could be. That there, there's some way where I can hear the good news of Christ and I can receive that, but it's powerful, daily, life-changing, transforming work isn't as powerful in my life as possible. Earlier in chapter 5, Paul kind of said it like this. He said, some of you are missing out on opportunities to live your life in such a way that you please the Lord. So I would say that's what Paul's talking about when he says you can receive it in vain. I can hear about God. I can receive the message of God. I need my sins forgiven. I, I can have my, my future for heaven secured, but it doesn't matter for me today. It's not transforming my loves today. It's not changing my affections today. It's not changing how I live at home today. Does that make sense? So I'm not doing anything practically daily with the good news that I've heard and that I've received. So I'm missing out on opportunities to live in a way that pleases God. That's, I think, what he means by living your life and receiving this grace in vain. So we've received this great grace of God and, and work through Jesus Christ. And then I want to put that in context because Paul's already told us what that means. Like when he says you've received the grace of God, he has very specific things in mind here, okay? So I want to outline what he's already told us. He's already said, what does that grace look like? We get to work with God in, in reconciling people, making people right with God. We get to work with God in his rescue mission of saving people from their sins. 
okay? So that's the first thing. He said, that's a grace from God. We've been brought into working with God to save the lost. Secondly, we get to work with God in reminding other Christians to live under the control of the love of Jesus. We talked about that last week. That's one of the things we get to do. We have the opportunity to do. We get to encourage each other, hey, live under the control of Christ. Let the love of Jesus control your actions, your thoughts, your mind, your words, all that, every relationship, all that. And thirdly, we got saved, right? He saved us from our sins. That is the grace of God. That's the beginning point of the grace of God, that he saved us from our sins. So he says you can receive all of that in vain, in emptiness. So I do, we should, you should begin to ask yourself, is he talking to me? Is he telling me you've received the grace of God in vain, in emptiness, without living out Christianity, and in a way that kind of makes Christianity hollow and empty? It's empty when I don't live out what God is giving to me, freedom, being right with other people, giving the gospel to other people, encouraging other people to live in such a way that they please God. There's an emptiness to that Christianity. When all you have is an extremely personal, devotional form of Christianity that isn't lived out in your daily life and how you interact with other people, there's an emptiness to that. And Paul's encouraging us, telling us not to live like that, that, that that's emptiness in how we would receive it. Second verse, just, I just want to throw this out, chapter 6, verse 2. So right after he talks about, man, don't receive the grace of God in vain, verse 2, he gives us this sense of urgency. At the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I healed you. Behold, now is the time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So Paul's like, listen, even if you've been living in vanity, you've been living in an emptiness, this very selfish view of God saved me, God's doing great stuff in me, it's me and God, and all that kind of, that's all your Christianity is. Even if you're in that place, it's like Paul's coming along behind us and saying, listen, you can change, do it today. You, you don't have to live like that anymore, and you can start today. There's this urgency behind what Paul is telling us here about how we can make a change to that. So I would say, I would kind of say it this way, God is patiently in a hurry. <laughs> God is patiently in a hurry, right? He is long-suffering in that he will let us take a long time to kind of come to him, and he'll be working in us and working in our circumstances, but he's also in a rush. Come to me, come to me, come to me. Believe in me, trust in me, change your life, live the way I want you to, do it today, I'll wait for you. See, there's this tension right there, right? And I think we have to ask the same question. Do I have a, a sense of God's urgency in my life? A sense of the urgency of God to live my life to the fullest of what it means to be a Christian? Or am I just lazy and taking it for granted and taking advantage of it? I'm saved and eventually I'll get around to loving Jesus and eventually I'll get around to dealing with that sin and eventually I'll get around to changing that. I've received good news yet I'm doing it in vain and emptiness and I'm just taking my time. Sometimes I think, or I think now, this morning, God is looking at some people in here and he's like, no, no, now, today, don't put this off anymore. If you sense some area in which you are living with emptiness or vanity in your Christian life, change it and start today. So we need to have that same kind of urgency that Paul is talking about here. So when he says you can live your life in vain as a Christian, 
What does he mean? Because he's going to get super specific. Now he's going to start digging. He's going to start picking at sore spots, okay? He's going to pull band-aids off of cuts right now, and we're not going to like this very much because he gets very specific about, here's what I'm talking about when I tell you some of you have taken Christianity and you're not living it to the fullest. You're living it in vain, okay? He gets very particular here. I'm going to say it this way, and we're going to pick it apart. He says, here's one way you can live in vanity. When you put yourself under the overwhelming influence of unbelievers. When you put yourself under the overwhelming influence of unbelievers, and you're giving your heart to them in a way that doesn't belong to them, you are taking the gospel and living it in vain. Now, some of us, this will hurt bad. This is going to hurt some of us really bad this morning. I would challenge you, anytime you come across a scripture that just gut punches you, okay, I would just challenge you, read the text and see if you can read it in any other way. If it's possible for you to come to some other conclusion, try to go with that. If not, you have to change your life, your beliefs, your values, your loves to match up to what scripture says. That's your only two options, okay? So if you can't find another viable way to read this text we're about to read, you have to conform to what God is telling us right here, okay? So what does it look like to receive grace in vain? He's getting real specific. When we put ourselves under the overwhelming influence of unbelievers, we give our loves and affections to them that don't belong to them. Look in chapter 6, verse 12. He says, you're not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in a like exchange, I speak to you as children, open wide to us also. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols. So he gets really specific here. If you're like, why? Well, I'm a good person. I haven't received the, you know, the love of God in vain, the grace of God in vain. Then he goes, okay, well, what's your relationships like? Where are you giving your core loves? What are the main affections in your life given to? Okay, that's the question he's asking here. We're going to really pick that apart just a little bit. Your older Bibles, and some of us remember these from older texts that we've read, it says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers, that word yoke. You have, is there a picture there, Lizzie? That word yoke, ba-ba-bam, ba-bam, does not that. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying don't have eggs with unbelievers, okay? That's not what he's talking about. The, then the next one, Liz, that's a yoke. That thing that connects the two oxen together, that's a yoke. Just leave that up for just a second for me, Lizzie, okay? That bar that connects these two animals together, that's the yoke. So does that help you a little bit? He's saying... Don't be bound together. Don't be yoked in these close, overwhelming relationships with unbelievers. That's what he's talking about. So he's really going to hammer us here on this point. He's talking about you would never take a rabbit and an oxen and yoke them together. You wouldn't even take a donkey and an oxen and yoke them together. They're pulling at different rates. They're going to respond to the commands in a different way. They're going to be trained differently than one another. One's going to be stronger and more enduring than the other one. Don't yoke together different animals. And he's taking this agricultural idea, and he's saying, now, in your relationships, don't be bound together in these close affiliations, these close affections with unbelievers. Giving our affections to those people who are outside the church but withholding them. This is, this is the context. You have to read this text in context. 
He's just told us to work on being reconciled to each other. Be right with one another. God's given us a, a ministry of building relationships with each other. In the power of Christ, you can do that, and you can give that away to other people. Now he's saying some of us are actually giving more love to people outside of the church than we are inside the church. We're more connected in our emotions and in our loves with people not who, who are not believers than with people who are believers. You're unequally yoked. You're, un, you're bound to two things that should not go together. This is not saying... This is not saying that we should not be friends or do business with non-Christians. Matter of fact, I would think that interpretation of this text contradicts other passages. It contradicts other places in 2 Corinthians. So I don't think you can just have this hardcore uh, reading of the text that says that, that you're not supposed to have relationships or, or agreements with them in any kind of way. This is not saying don't love non-Christians. That also contradicts other passages. Right? So it can't, we can't have those two applications or interpretations. I think it probably, this text is probably echoing. It, it reflects the, the big idea, the ethos of when Jesus said, love the Lord and hate your mother, father, and husband, and wife, and children. It's very similar to that um, in what he's kind of describing here. We can't love God and his things and his people if we are primarily pouring ourselves into and and looking for our need to be loved into people that don't love God. Now that sounds hard and harsh. If you can find an alternate way to, to read this text and apply it, I am all ears. I've wrestled with this for 30 years, and then recently this week for hours, this is where you land over and over and over again. So what does that look like practically? Okay, well here's the one we've all, most of us, if you've been in church any amount of time, You've heard it applied this way. Marriage and dating, right? We should not date. We should not marry those of us who love Jesus, who have followed him, who have given our lives to him, who have called him Lord. We should not marry, date and marry people who don't have the same commitment in their hearts. Okay? So we, that's probably our primary way we've heard this uh, applied. There's a guy named Adam Clark, and he wrote about this, and he said this. He quoted an old saying, and he said, a man, listen, a man who is truly pious holy, seeking Christ, marrying with an unconverted woman will either draw back to sinfulness or he will carry across his entire life. The same thing can be said for a pious woman who marries an unconverted man. Such persons cannot say this. Now just think about this. Those people cannot say this part of the Lord's prayer, lead us not into temptation, because they are plunging into it of their own accord. Now just think about that. That's a, that's a pretty straightforward application of this text that I think is right on. To bind yourself in marriage or a dating relationship to someone who is not bowing the knee to Jesus Christ along with you, you can't, there's sections of, of Scripture that you have automatically ruled out of applying to your life. There's parts of the Christian life that you will never experience the fullness of because you have bound your heart and your emotions and your goals and your life to someone who's pulling in a different direction. That picture should stick in your head, two oxen headed in two different directions, bound together. Can you imagine the chaos? Some of us are romantically unequally yoked 
What else? What else does this mean? I would say the second thing would be this. Another way to apply it would be primary levels of influence. People who have these primary levels of influence in you. If we are to be changed at every level of our life by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we cannot give the right of primary influence to those people who don't love Him. Now, here's where the big challenge is for Western Americans, okay? How do we handle our children in school? This is a big question. I'm a public school guy. My kids went to public school. I'm not banging on either side of the debate, but this is a debate worth having. Who should have primary influence over our children? Where are we giving primary influence? Now, those of you who are Christian educators, praise Jesus for you. You're in a dark place. Thank you. And I would love for my children to have been brought up through public schools underneath Christian educators the entire time. That didn't happen. Who are we giving primary influence over our children to eight hours a day, five days a week for 12 years? That's a, that's a question we need to answer as Christians, I think, in our culture, specifically in our culture. I think we need to speak into that a little bit more. There are other places for us to apply this and for us to wrestle with this text, but this is definitely one of those areas where we need to wrestle with this text hard and let the Holy Spirit speak into us. So we can't give the right of primary influence to those who don't love him. Now here's where I'm going to hit our Xers. Xers get to hide. You ever notice that? I'm a Gen Xer, so we hide. We hide between the boomers and the millennials, and we let them fight each other all the time. And there's an Xer group in the middle, and we're like, hope you guys work that out, you know, kind of a thing. <laughs> so I'm going to hit on our Xers and our millennials just a little bit here. We are children of our culture. Maybe more, maybe more than any other Christian part of our culture ever has been. Those of us who were brought up in church and under some primary influence of the church, we have given more of our lives and more of our hearts and more of our dreams away to our culture and let our culture speak into that, I think, more than other generations have and do. So here, here's the thing we all need to understand. As much as you think you've pulled away from the world, every person in here is a, is a child of this culture. We're all over consumers. We're all over independent thinkers thinking that we can do ourselves the best way we can do us and that I'm the end of all everything. You know, we're child we're children of our culture, okay? I think our younger generations are more so children of our cultures than previous generations were. Here here's the attention place for us in this regard. Who's speaking primarily into our lives? I think you have to learn how to speak the language of your culture but not be a slave to it. So my, my Xers, my millennials, my children who are in this room, this is going to be your challenge as a thinking Christian. How can I know my culture and speak into it and function in it and not be a slave to it? That's going to be a trick for you because the Christian culture that was here 60 years ago is gone. And it's never coming back. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You guys are going to have to figure out how to navigate these waters of, I'm a believer, but I live in a lost world. How do I figure out how to be a believer in a lost world? Speak the language, be in the culture, be a part of who they are, be salt and light in a dark place, but not be a slave to that culture. And I would say most of you who are in these age groups, you don't think like that at all. You are very much a consumer of what culture puts right in front of you all the time with very little discernment. So I'm asking you to ramp up your discernment, to quit just sucking everything up with a straw that culture puts in front of you all the time primary influence that can also be we some of us are unequally yoked 
in our cultural loves. Third thing, spiritual loyalty. Paul mentions Belial, B-E-L-I-A-L. That's um, a way, a roundabout way to say Satan. You could say Satan and it would be very accurate. So it's another way to kind of say Satan. And especially through kind of godless people, uh, that's, that's, that's really the way that that word would be used. Belial would be used of someone who was following a, a godless a way of life, okay? So Paul says at the end, what does Christ have in common with Belial? What is, what is a person who is following Jesus, loving Christ, submitting their life to the lordship of Jesus, have ultimately in common with a person who's not, and who at the end of the day is maybe ignorantly serving Satan? How do those two people ever come to a common understanding of what life is about, the most important things in life? That's what Paul's point is here. So some of us were spiritually unequally yoked. We're, we're um, bound to the wrong thing. So th I would say this is, we could use the word idols here. And I don't mean like idols of the heart. I love something. or so, I'm talking about like real idols, man. Actual idols. What is it that we're loving? What ideas are we building in our lives? What things are we mourning when they leave? I, I think Keller's right. I think the things that make you mad and the things that make you sad reveal a lot of what you're actually worshiping in your life. What is it that I'm mourning when it's taken out of my life? These things begin to reveal our idols to us, whether it's their presence or the hope of their presence or their absence. These things that are controlling our emotions and our dreams and our plans, some of us are unequally yoked with idols. We have given primary influence, primary affection in our lives to things other than Christ. We want Christ and So overall application, I think, would be this. Don't enter into a relationship. This is hard. Don't enter into a deep relationship that will compromise your Christian integrity or weaken your desire and will for holiness or cast a shadow on your reputation. Now, that's hard, right? I think if you're going to enter into these relationships with lost people, it's got to be like Jesus, man. You have to have a Jesus model. He hung out with prostitutes. He hung out with drunks. He hung out with demon-possessed people. He hung out with, like, the worst of the worst of the worst. Not to become like them, but to change them. Not to become like them, to show them God's love. Not to become like them, but to call them to change. Not to become like them, but to show them, to demonstrate for them what does it look like to follow God and live in this world. So if you can do that, I'll, I used to tell my students when I did student ministry, if you're going to tell me you're going to do that, I'll drive you to the party. I'll take you there. I never had a taker on that one. <laughs> never had anybody say, yeah, Joe, drive me to the party. I'm going to be there to make an influence for Jesus, right? It's hard. This is a difficult, difficult thing. There's a level of maturity you kind of have to get to before you can immerse yourself in a lost culture. Some of us stop way short of that, so we never make an impact on a lost culture. Some of us begin to despise the lost culture around us so we don't have the love of Christ for the lost. But I can't, as a growing, maturing believer, consistently give my heart's affections and desires and dreams to something other than Christ that's probably battling against me being completely devoted to Christ. Sam Storms, a pastor, said this. He said, great uh, kind of diagnostic questions. What relationships put me in situations that are tempting me beyond what I can endure? That's a great question. 
Does my discernment, when I'm in those relationships or in those situations, does my discernment of good and bad become grayed, too gray? I, I lose my sense of black and white and right and wrong. Do I get less public about my love for Jesus when I'm in those relationships? Those relationships probably have an undue amount of influence in our lives. That's what he's talking about, I believe, in this text. So what does this all mean when I tie it back into having, uh, receiving the grace of God in vain? It means this, to allow any and everything and any and everyone to have influence in my life and to steal places of love in my hearts that belong to Jesus. In verse 18, God comes along behind all that, and he says, you know, come out, I'm going to make you my people, I'm going to dwell with you. And he says, verse 18, I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me. And then he says, says the Lord Almighty. That little phrase, Lord Almighty, it only appears twice in the New Testament, once here, once in the book of Revelation. And it basically means this, that, that idea of an almighty God, and this, this verse, this word means the God who has his hand in everything. Not an omnipresent God, an all-acting God. A God who has his hands in everything. So who is it that's calling you out? Who is it that's calling you into this close relationship with him where you're cutting your heartstrings to other things and other people in the world? Demanding your love. That's what he's doing. Who is it that's doing that? The God who has his hand in everything is doing that. The God Almighty is doing that. Not just some piddly God or Jesus on the cross God. The God who is all-powerful with his hands and everything is saying, come out, be holy. I will dwell with you. You'll be my people. I'll be your God. That's who's calling us out like that. That's the grace of God too, right? It's the grace of God that calls us into that relationship with him. I can receive that in vain. Paul, it's beyond Paul's imagination to think that somebody would accept the grace of God for salvation and then reject the purifying work of the Holy Spirit. He can't, he can't make ends of that. Paul can't understand that. How could you possibly say you're going to go to heaven, you receive Jesus when you're 6, 8, 10, 12 years old, and yet your life doesn't look any different? You're rejecting the daily purifying work of Jesus in your life. The Holy Spirit never crosses your mind during the week when you're going through Netflix or you're thinking about what music to listen to or how to spend your money. That's beyond Paul to think that, that anybody would say that's Christianity. Where are you on this spectrum? If you just put a 1 through 10 thing on here, learning to love God and please Him more and more, or withholding things from God and giving them to the world, trying to have Jesus and this other stuff, these other people, these other loves. Here's what you're doing. You're trying to put Jesus following Christ, maybe you in the, the uh, yoke and culture on the other side. You're putting Christ on one side and you're putting a lost lover on the other side. And you sit in the cart and you whip it and you say, pull me somewhere. You get the picture. That's what Paul's trying to explain to us. You cannot live, you cannot live into the fullness of the grace of God for you on this earth and be bound to things, to people who are not also equally bound toward the Lord. Doesn't mean you don't love people who don't love Jesus. Doesn't mean you try to reach people who don't love him. Your primary places of influence can't be from those people back into your lives. So Paul's encouraging them 
into the fullness of their life in Christ. So some of us just heard this and we're already mad. We're done. I'm not, you're not going to hear anything else I say because you're like, why is Paul meddling in my life? Why is Paul telling me what to do? Matter of fact, why is God telling me what to do? What right does he have to tell me how to live my life? Save me, thank you, cross, thank you, resurrection, amen. You don't get to tell me where I love. You don't get to tell me who I, I attach my life to and my affections to. You don't get to tell me how to interact with, with culture. And we're already kind of ticked off that we've already had this conversation because we're interpreting this scripture as if God's whole deal is telling you what you can't do. As if God's in heaven going, you know what? Jordan would have a great time if I let him do this, but I'm not going to let him do it. <laughs> is, that, is that your picture of God? That somehow God's in heaven and he wants to squash your fun? He doesn't really want you to have the fullness of life? What if it's the opposite? Jordan would really like that, but if he runs across that freeway, an 18-wheeler is going to hit him, and I'm going to tell him not to do it because there's a better way to have the fullness of life. What if that's your picture of God? Doesn't that change the, the conversation here? It just reveals where our loves really are. Those of us who are offended at this point in the message, you should just thank the Holy Spirit that he's talking to you because it really does reveal where my loves actually are. I'm ticked because Jesus has decided to come kick my baby today. Right? And we're mad about that. It's just revealing where are your loves. You're unequally yoked and you're not, at, you're not happy that Jesus is calling you out on it right now. Paul's emphasis here, his encouragement to us this morning, he wants us to live in the fullness of who we are. He wants us to know the fullness of what it means to, to live like Christ and to have his holiness in our lives. The, the new identity in Jesus. We are now slaves to righteousness. We've been recreated in Jesus Christ. And Paul's like, this is who you are. This is now what you are. And on top of that, Paul has already written them two hard letters, which he talked about. We read 1 Corinthians, which is a tough book. Then there's another one that we don't have. So he's written them these two letters, and he's like, stop doing it that way. That's not how you experience the fullness of Christ. Do it this way. This is the best way to know the holiness, the goodness of God in your life. So I'm going to, we've, we've talked about this twice. I need to say it again here. Paul is encouraging them to live in the fullness of Jesus. So I'm going to ask you, who can talk to you like Paul talks to these people? Who gets the right to come into your life and tell you, listen, that is the wrong way. That's not the fullness of life. That's not holiness. That's not godliness. You will not find happiness at the end of that road. And they're not mean, and they don't not love you. They want what's best for you, but they can say hard things to you. Who is it in your life that has the right to come into you and to speak to you like that? And then flipping it around, who do you get to speak into like that? Who do you get to come to with humility, great humility and great love and a lot of prayer? And you get to go to them and say, listen, this is not the way to go. I love you, and I see you headed toward this dark abyss. You're about to run across the freeway. This is not the way to live, man. The end of it's not happiness. Who do you get to speak into like that? And then here's the next one. Paul's about to get into this. How do you respond when somebody does talk to you like that? Most of us don't have anybody in our lives to talk to us like that because we don't want anybody talking to us like that. Our knee-jerk reaction is to take offense, which we have perfected as a culture, right? 
We get offended when people call us out on our stuff. I don't, I'm not saying to anyone in this room, be a martyr and let people beat you up and tell you that everything you do is wrong, you know, all that kind of stuff. There has to be some discernment here, un, you know, unloving things that are done and said to us. But we do want to be in relationships where people can speak with clarity and honesty and godliness into us. Don't we? I think we do. I do. So what he's doing here, he's instructing them. He's saying, don't live like that. That's receiving the gospel in vain. There's a better way to live. There's a way to live to the fullness of what God has for you, the fullness of Christianity. So what are some things that might keep us from doing that? Look in verse, uh, chapter 7 now. Verse 8, he continues to go. And he's like, here are some things that can keep you from living in the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of grace. Uh, chapter 7, verse 8. He said, though I caused you sorrow by my letter, so he's talking about the letter that he wrote that was hard. He said, listen, I know that upset you, even though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. He says, now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Some of us get so wigged out that if I say something to them, they're not going to like me. At some point or another, you have to not care about that. And you have to go, at the end of the day, I want to lead you to godliness and repentance. I'm not going to be ugly with what I say, but I'm going to be honest and godly about what I say. And it's going to make you mad for a while, but I'm going to pray that it takes you to a place of repentance and godliness. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So what can keep us from living in this fullness of, of uh, the gospel and the grace of God, what he's done in our lives, what he's doing in our lives? First thing I would say, a backdoor issue that Paul doesn't say out loud, but I think this is behind it all, is unbelief. If I don't really believe that I'm recreated, if I don't really believe that you've been recreated, so God's changed me, he's changing me today, he's changed you, he's cha you're not the same person you're going to be tomorrow, I'm not going to be the same person I am right now. If I don't really believe that, I'm not going to push on to maturity, and I'm not going to push anything to try to be right with you, because my belief system doesn't back that up. If I believe you're going to be the same person, the same schmuck you are today, tomorrow, why would I ever come talk to you? That's a Yiddish word, I think. Schmuck, right? Why would I ever come challenge you on something that's wrong? Why would I ever work with you toward holiness? If I don't have a deep-seated theological belief that the Holy Spirit has rebirthed me and rebirthed you, and we are working together with Him to be different, if I don't believe that, I'm never going to come and talk to you about things, and you're never coming, you won't hear the things from me that I have to say. I see this a lot in marriage, a lot in marriage and marriage counseling. He always, she never. As long as you don't believe, this is a core belief issue. Feelings, emotions, everything flow out of belief. As long as I don't believe that I'm a new creation, as long as I don't believe that everything really is new, that's chapter 5, I will get entrenched and I will cast that person in the, in the worst light possible. Because I don't believe they've been, they've been changed. I don't believe they're being changed. I feel a certain way. 
I need them to be the most horrible person possible to vindicate my feelings. What you believe matters. I can't live into the fullness of what God has for me, holiness, godliness, and the grace of God if my belief system doesn't match up to reality, the truth of God. Unbelief can keep me from living in the fullness of God. As long as I believe, if I really believe that I can yoke myself, bind myself to unbelievers, give them the primary place of influence in my life, if I believe I'm going to be the exception to the rule. Some of us just read 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6, and we're like, we drew an asterisk on the text, and at the bottom of the page, we wrote my name, Joe. I can live with unbelievers. I can bind myself to people who don't love Jesus. I'm strong enough to, to live with them and give my life to them and let them love me and me love them and find my acceptance in them and my satisfaction. I'll be the one who this doesn't come true for. If you believe that you're going to be the exception to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, here's what's going to happen. Eventually, in small ways at first, but big ways at the end, you will compromise, not them. You will compromise your beliefs, and I would dare say, eventually walk away from a practicing Christianity. You will maintain a wishy-washy, weak form of Christianity that is frustrating and powerless. Unbelief. What I believe matters, and it dictates how I believe, what I feel and what I do. So unbelief will keep me from living into the fullness of Christianity, the fullness of the grace of God, and I will receive it in vain. Second thing, regret. Paul talks about regret here. When we get caught up, when we get lost in everything we haven't done and everything that we have done and we wish it was different, it can hinder, it, hinder us in the future for obedience and for joy. There's a grief that can come over us. We can be so overwhelmed at the significance of something that we've done in the past or that may have been done to us or that we didn't do in the past. We can be so overwhelmed by that that we never recover from it. And we become embittered or depressed or we begin to think there's no future for me because I did, because I didn't do, because of regret. Satan is a master manipulator and a great liar and he's watched us for a long time. And he comes alongside you at that point and he begins to tell you lies. And he begins to agree with your self-doubt. And he begins to agree with you that you're no good. And he begins to agree with you that no one will ever love you. And he begins to agree with he's telling you all this stuff that he knows is already kind of happening inside of you. He'll tell you there's no way you can recoup from this. That's grief according to the world. There is a regret that can come our way, a grief over what we've done or haven't done that can be so overwhelming that we don't feel like we'll ever come out of it and it produces nothing but defeat. That is grief and regret according to the world. Then Paul says there's another way to have regret. There's another way to have grief. There's a godly regret, he says. And that's a regret that frees us up from the past and sets us, sets us up to live in the fullness of Christ today. So there's a godly kind of regret. First of all, here's what that looks like. I'm going to give you four steps to happiness. No, I'm not. I'm going to give you some things. I'm going to give you some stuff in here where, that Paul lays out. Like, 
what do I do with my regret? Like, what does a godly regret look like? First of all, embrace your guilt. This is so counterintuitive. Nobody wants to admit they're wrong. Nobody wants to admit they're the sinner. Nobody wants to admit they're the primary offender. No, none of us gravitate toward that. We may gravitate toward self-hatred, but we don't gravitate toward real, true, godly, I did that and I'm culpable for that. I'm responsible for that. Embrace your guilt. Embrace your regret. In verse 80 says that. You are at fault. Here's the thing about grace. Just deal with it honestly before God. I just read something today and it said, uh, the law says, I screwed up, dad's going to kill me. Grace says, I screwed up, I'm going to call my dad. There, there, there's something to this idea of grace that if you really get grace, you understand God knows you're a screw-up. He ain't surprised by it. He might be more surprised when we do good stuff, actually, I think, you know? He ain't surprised when we mess up. The way to get out of regret and a regret that leads to sorrow is to come to God and embrace that and say, God, I did this. I was wrong. I did not handle that well. I didn't retreat them well. I, didn't, I wasn't respectful. Whatever the deal is, own that guilt and regret for what you've done and then just deal honestly with God with it. He's waiting for you to come to Him. Right? That's the good news about grace. Secondly, work out your regret. Verse 11, work it out. You're at fault. Not only do you need to deal honestly with God, you got to deal honestly with other people. Generally speaking, we sin against two people, God and others. It's two parties that have been offended most of the time. So we have to deal with it with God, and then we have to deal with it with other people. And maybe, that, maybe this morning, that's all you need to hear. Why am I not experiencing the fullness of God? I think I'm receiving grace in vain. And, and maybe it's this. You know you've done something wrong and you've never gone to that person and apologized. You've never made up for it. You, you've never owned your guilt and gone to that person and said, let's work this out together. Third thing, give your regret to God, verses 9 and 10. Listen, God's able. He's more than able. He can take your regrets. He can take your, your sins, your mistakes, your errors, your, all, all the things you didn't do and the things you have done, and he can use them for good. I have a mixed bag personal illustration about that, right? I hate Christianity when everything turns out good because it doesn't ever happen in my life. You know what I mean? I like Christianity. It's a little messy because that's my life. I live in a messy world, man, right? Not that God doesn't do good things and all that, but generally speaking, it's kind of a mixed bag. So there was a time when, when I had a good friend of mine, really good friend of mine, adult, and, uh, you know, men, it's hard to come across good friends for guys. I had a really good friend of mine as an adult, and uh, I just felt like he was, I did, I, I was right. He was doing things uh, in our church home that I believed were extremely harmful for people. Set up a time to talk with him, and I was really doing my best to reason with him and explain to him what I thought was happening. Then I brought up what I really thought, I really thought this is like the coup de grace, right? This is the thing that's going to get him and convince him of how awesome I am, <laughs> how right I am, you know, and all that, and he's going to come around to my side. At the, at the time, I believed that. And I thought my cause was right enough that I could bring that up. It crushed him. If you've ever been as a man in a relationship with another dude, and you crush him, I crushed another man. 
And that was, that was hard. It was hard to see and know that while I was doing it, this is what was happening. It was over the top and unnecessary to make my point. However right I was, it was irrelevant now. Over the next several weeks, it was just killing me. And I knew I had to get with this person and try to make it right. And we did, and we met. We've met several times since then. I regret that event. I regret that I said those words. I regret that I gave them a place in my heart. And I regret that I brought them to the light of day. I regret that. I regret the fallout that came as a result of that. What I don't regret is trying to make it right. I honored God in what I did in the fallout of it. I honored the Lord in how I tried to be right with Him. We're probably not right today. I don't know if we will be on this side of heaven. God's done some things and worked in us, and, you know, we can talk to each other. But it hadn't been restored to that level. Does that mean it's a failure? Absolutely not. That I can stand in front of you guys and tell you that? That's a big deal. I've experienced grace of God in this area. Has everything popped back into happy heavenly? Are we, you know, painting unicorns together and stuff? No, that's not happening. God's worked in me. He's worked in him. He's given us grace, and I'm doing my best to live in that grace and fall on the sword of grace. God, I screwed up. Go to my friend who I offended. I screwed up. I hurt you. That's wrong. See what I'm saying? It's a mixed bag. I want the fullness of godliness in my life. What does it mean to receive the grace of God in vain? To not live out in my daily life the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in every area of my life. That's what it looks like. And there is a regret in life that can come your way that saps the power of Christianity out of you. You have to know how to handle your regret and handle your guilt and give it to the Lord and let him use it. So he then says, Paul's going to get into this. He's going to say, God's given us these, these promises. Here's the great thing about God's promises. They can't ever be broken. They can be delayed, but they can't be broken. If God's promised something, it's going to happen. Okay? His time frame, but it will happen. So he says, God's given us all these promises, these great promises, real promises. They're not tied to our situation or our circumstances or our health. Here's what he said. Here's God's promises just in 2 Corinthians. So I'm not even going outside this book. A future home with him. I don't deserve that. An eternal future home with God. That's God's promise. Secondly, meaning in my suffering. When I hurt, when I go through pain, there is meaning for that. God is using it to, for me and for other people. Third thing, he's purifying my soul. That's a promise for God, from God, right? I am working in you, Joe, to purify you, to get out the dross, to burn off the stuff that doesn't need to be there. I am purifying you. Third, fourth thing, total recreation. Total recreation. That's a promise from God. I will be made completely new at some point. He is always with us. Always with us. The God of the universe, the almighty God who has his hand in everything, is always with us. Now, what are we supposed to do with these promises? Verse, chapter 7, verse 1. And chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1, we read it. Working together with him, 
We also urge you to not receive the grace of God in vain. So we've talked about it. There's a way I can take Christianity and live it in an empty way. Chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these great promises, beloved, here he goes, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and the spirit and perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What do I do with the promises of God? Do I sit in my quiet time and read my journal and go, yay, Jesus loved me, and that's it? He says, no, that's emptiness, that's vanity. Work out your salvation. Cleanse yourselves. Perfect your holiness. Okay? So let's talk just a little bit about that. We'll kind of be done this morning. God is so good. God is so kind. God is so gracious. He's given us all these things. Here is our proper response to him. This is the expected response. And he doesn't say, here's the least you can give to God. Scripture almost always says, here's the most you can give to God. Let's give, let's give that to him. So this is like God, Jesus saying, here's what you can give to me. You love what I've done for you. If you love my grace, here, if you want my promises and you love them, give this to me as a response. So here's our proper response back to him. First of all, God cleanses us and we cleanse ourselves. An uncomfortable part of this passage in, in the New Testament is I have some responsibility to cleanse myself. God's doing something in me. He's recreating me. The Holy Spirit's doing something. And then I am commanded to cleanse myself, to do something in my life. I would say this if I was going to split these things apart from each other. I would say this is the stuff we're supposed to take out. Cleanse myself. What should I take out of my life? This is what it looks like to live every day when sin is crushing down and I'm confessing my regrets and I'm being right with people that I've wronged. I'm valuing Christian relationships above other relationships. I'm going to get myself clean from any religion, any form of Christianity that says to me, you're free, but doesn't require me to live out or to believe what it means to be free. I'm going to reject that. So cleanse, take that stuff out. Then he says, cleanse your body and your spirit. What's on the inside? Pride, fear, angerness, bitterness, jealousy, hatred. Jesus made it pretty clear that those things are maybe more damning and more difficult to deal with than the things that I do. That's what's inside. Cleanse your body, cleanse your spirit. Second thing he says, perfect your holiness. Complete your holiness. I think this is what we put in. Cleansing is taking off. Holiness is what I'm taking in. How can you complete your holiness? Just to begin to apply this whole text. Are you ready? Do you drink a little bit too much? I'm not saying alcohol is wrong. I'm not saying that, that you shouldn't drink. I'm just asking. Do you drink a little bit too much? Do you spend too much time on the, next, on the Xbox or on Netflix? Do you eat without thought? Do you spend money and make financial investments without thought of it? And how that it might al allow or not allow work in the kingdom of God? Complete your holiness. What does that mean in this text? It means this. Live like there's another reality beyond this existence. It means this. Live like you're going to go there someday. There's a judgment and you're going to be there with Jesus, the one that loves us. Third thing, live in order to please God. Fourth thing, be reconciled to God through Jesus. Fifth thing, be reconciled to people because of Jesus. Sixth thing, love God and love his people first. 
Seventh thing, don't get stuck in unbelief and regret. Cleanse yourself. Some of us right now, we're nudging somebody, we're praying, oh, I hope they hear that. They need to cleanse themselves. They really need to perfect their holiness. I hope they get it today. Cleanse yourself. This is not an unhealthy preoccupation with other people's problems. Cleanse yourself. How do we apply all this and be done? First thing I want to say for some of us in the room, we checked out at the beginning because we're like, I got all this. I don't struggle with any of that stuff. I'm more mature than that. And that's fine. Some of us are. We've, we've moved to a different point in our Christian walk. Here's my challenge to you this morning. Don't rest where you're at. Don't get lazy in your spirituality. Yes, you've come a long way. Yes, you've mastered certain sins and they don't no longer own you. Uh, yes, you've brought certain kinds of holiness into your life. Yes, that's all true. But no matter how far you've come, no matter how different you are from who you used to be, you cannot rest on what you or God did yesterday. You can't be fulfilled on what's already happened in you a year ago at another church somewhere a long time ago. Don't coast in your spiritual walk. Stir yourself up. Cleanse yourself. Perfect your holiness. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. God, how do we take this passage so much here, God, about what this is about? I want to help us understand again, Father, we're talking about, God, I don't want to receive the grace of God in emptiness and vanity. You've been so good to me and so kind to me and so gracious to me. I want to live my life in a way that reflects how great you are. Don't let me live like this is emptiness. I don't want to get lost in my regret. Father, I've got regrets. I've got things I shouldn't have done, shouldn't have said. God, I don't want to get stuck there. Give me the, the courage and the grace and the belief to give my regret to you, to own it, tell you that I am guilty, and then to work it out with the other person resting on your power and your grace to do something new in us. God, I don't want to be lazy in my holiness. Are you lazy in your holiness? Are you pursuing holiness? Are you cleansing yourself? God, I don't want to be lazy in my holiness. Give me a zeal, a passion. Renew my passion so that I wouldn't receive your grace in vain. God, you're so good. We've sung it a little bit today, and I've said it several times. We just want to stop now and tell you again, you are so good. Your promises are so good. Your grace is more than enough. Thank you for all of it. Don't let me live. Don't let us live like it just doesn't matter or that it matters for the future or heaven. It matters now. It matters today. Stir us up to cleanliness, holiness, and being right with people. Thank you for your love for us. Thanks for Jesus. That's the only way this is possible. Through Jesus Christ, you're changing us. Make this all true in our lives, God, so we know the, the wholeness of Christianity, the fullness, the satisfaction of loving you, following you.